Please be finding Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, when you get there, just hold your Bible open and uh, look this way. Ephesians chapter 4. Did you know that red does not make bulls angry? Did you know that bats aren't blind? Did you know that if you shave your head, your hair will not grow back thicker? Did you know if you touch a baby bird with your bare hands, its mother will not reject it? Did you know that cracking your knuckles will not give you arthritis? All of those things that I've just shared with you are commonly held beliefs that are myths that have been accepted as truth. Now, a myth is accepted as truth for one reason. Assumption. And many Christians and many church members have made assumptions about Christian ministry and about the ministers. In fact, in his book, Steve Morell was writing in WikiChurch uh, about certain myths that have been adopted by uh, many Christians about the church and leadership. And he identified three different myths. They are the mentoring myth, the ministry myth, and the maturity myth. Now, he takes some time in his book to describe what he means by those in his evaluation and his observations on the church. And he describes the mentoring myth is one which has believers thinking that only vocational ministers should be engaged in the ministry. You know, you need to be seminary trained, you need to be ordained. Then he describes the uh, ministry myth. You've got the mentors, and the ministry myth is one that says, you know, uh, I'd love to engage in ministry, but I have a sinful past that really is just awful. Or maybe you think to yourself, you know, because I'm a very reserved person. Or maybe it's because you think of yourself and when you do, you say, you know, I'm not very talented after all. There's not many things I can do. You think to yourself that I'm lazy. I don't read the Word. I don't pray. I don't memorize Scripture. And for all of these reasons, we have the assumption and we believe the ministry myth and the ministry myth is that I'm just not the right type for the ministry. And then there's a third type of myth and that myth is the maturity myth and that is before I engage in ministry, I need to grow up. I need to be more mature as a Christian. What we're going to find this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the Apostle Paul and the Word of God totally debunks all of those myths about ministry and church leadership. In fact, the title of my message this morning is a very lengthy one. I can just see myself doing this in a preaching laboratory. I mean, they'd rip me to shreds for a title like this. So, but I want you to hear that the message this morning that I'm bringing to you is entitled, An All-Play, Everyday, Disciple-Making Church. 
And I want us to begin by reading in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at the 7th verse. And we're going to read through the 13th verse. So if you would, take your Bible and follow along with me as I begin the reading, verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now let's look at that title again for just a moment. I want to break it down piece by piece. All play. Everyone gets into the game. Everyone gets playing time. Every day. That's simple enough to understand. And then we come across this word disciple making. Well, when we look at that word, a disciple is uh, from the Greek word methetes. It means simply a learner. More specifically, it means someone who is a, a, a close follower. Someone who mimics the person who's teaching them. But I like to think of it in our terminology today as an apprentice. We certainly understand apprenticeships. If you're a plumber's apprentice, then what you understand is that this is a person who follows along with a master plumber. And at first, you know, the plumber is doing the job. You're there. You're under the sink with him looking at what he's doing. And then he says, would you go get me? And he names a tool. Then you're the one who runs out to the truck to get the tool. Then you come back and you watch what he does with the tool and why he asked for that particular tool and you have questions and answer time and all these things. And eventually what will happen is the plumber will go on the job with you. He'll watch you do the job. If you do something wrong, he'll correct you. He'll show you what you're supposed to do differently or he'll just pat you on the back and say, great job, until eventually what happens is you yourself become a master plumber. You go on and you begin doing plumbing all on your own without anybody else's supervision. I also like to think of it in terms of the medical student. You know, when you're a medical student, you graduate from med school, that's not the end of the program. What happens as a part of medical student is that you become a first-year resident. First-year resident, you can recognize as the people that are walking around the hospital who have the white short coats on. They don't have the long one yet. They have the short coats on. This identifies them as a first-year resident. The first-year resident goes into surgery. They watch another person perform surgery. Eventually, they do the same like the plumber's apprentice. They get in there. They get their hands in the, in the mix, and they start getting involved in doing the surgery themselves, and then they become a full-time resident in the second year. Now, all of those things are a way to describe for us what the Bible is talking to us when it talks about a church. A church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It means literally the called out ones. But it's a word that was already in existence when Jesus came around. The word was used in ancient Greeks by the ancient Greeks to describe a political assembly. 
Jesus took a word that already existed and then he gave it a new meaning. He said, this is a reference to those of you who have been called out by God for his own peculiar purpose, for God's purposes. Now what I want you to see in this text is that the Apostle Paul destroys those many different myths that have developed over time among church members. And all play, every day, disciple-making church involves, first of all, gifting the members. Look at it. In verses 7 through 10, the first thing that we notice is that in Ephesians 4, Paul's discussing those things which contribute to Christian unity among the members of Jesus' body. From last week, we saw in verses 4 through 6, what we saw there, that there are certain things that we hold commonly with all believers. Now he says in verses 7 through 10, that there are certain gifts that we possess, and these are different from other believers because each of us has our own gift that we receive from God, and it speaks of that which all Christians individually possess uniquely. So we share all things in verses 4 through 6. Nevertheless, when we think about those things, there are those distinct gifts which God has given to us. Now, there are many places in the Bible that speak about these gifts. The Bible tells us that the Spirit is the one whom Jesus sent with these gifts to equip His church for ministry. But I want you just to write down some passages to look up later on that are references to spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Jot these verses down. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10 and verse 28. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And then also 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Now those are all places in Scripture that speak to us about spiritual gifts and then we come to Ephesians chapter 4 and we find out that Ephesians chapter 4 is also speaking to us about gifts but when we come to Ephesians chapter 4 we see that it's got a unique emphasis it differs from these other lists that we read and what I'd like to do in this morning's message I'd like to point out a few of those unique things about the gifts spoken of in Ephesians chapter 4 in 1st Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 11, the Holy Spirit is mentioned as the one who gives the gifts and through which the gifts that we are given are employed. But look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Notice the wording there. Ephesians 4, verse 7 tells us that spiritual gifts are not only gifts of the Spirit, but they're also gifts from Christ. You see that? Paul writes, verse 7, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then in verse 8, he informs us that because of our Lord's victory, climaxing in His ascension, spiritual gifts are bestowed on believers. The picture is Christ is the victor. Jesus has won the victory over death, the grave, and His enemies. And then He ascended into heaven, and as the victor... He has captured the spoils of war. And then he distributes the spoils of war to the believers for the ongoing ministry of his church. Now notice in verses 9 and 10 that Paul links spiritual gifts with the descent and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's usage of some of the words from Psalm 68 
verse 18. Uh, it's difficult to understand how it squares with the meaning of Psalm 68 itself, but it's very clear why he uses it here in Ephesians chapter 4 in its context. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul uses this verse, he's except from 68, 16 in Psalm. He uses this because what he wants to do is he wants to give us two purposes that Christ gave us these gifts. First of all, he says to us, we've already seen in verse 8, it's to show that spiritual gifts have been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the victor, who has championed, who has won the war, who over all everything else that opposes him, death, the grave, all of his enemies, he's won it and he's given the gifts to us and he's saying this to us. But secondly, I want you to understand that he shows us the spiritual gifts are closely related to humility. Notice what he says. What did Christ do? He descended so that he may ascend. Now, in the context of chapter 4, it's very clear Paul's talking to us about unity, but he's also speaking to us about humility. What did Jesus do? He descended so that he might ascend. And with this reference, what Paul is saying to you and to me is he's saying the way up is the way down and the way down is the way up the body is gifted for ministry every member of Christ's body is gifted by Jesus Christ who sent the spirit to give us gifts to be used in ministry but the way to use those gifts is Humility. Now Jesus had this conversation with his disciples before he was crucified. He was speaking with them and the story is reported by Matthew in Matthew chapter 20. If you want to look there, Matthew chapter 20, particularly verses 26 to 28 give us the uh, conclusion that Jesus brings to his disciples. But let me just kind of paint the scene for you real quickly. The picture in Matthew chapter 20 is Jesus has been with his disciples and in one of these uh, pauses in their time together, James and John say to their mother, would you go and approach Jesus on our behalf and ask him if we can sit on his right and left hand when the kingdom comes. When he brings in his kingdom, let us be the ones who sit up there on his right and on his left. Well, you know, as soon as this transpires, you know, the other ten disciples, they figure out what's going on here, and they're saying what? Among themselves, they're saying, who do these guys think they are? James and John wanting to be first and second in the kingdom, and then Jesus puts the hammer down on the situation. And in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 28, listen to what Jesus says there. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us today, the way down 
is the way up. When we are given these gifts by God, the way that we are to exercise these gifts is with extreme humility. The same humility that Jesus brought Jesus down to earth is the same humility through which God wants us to use our gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we're going to employ spiritual gifts in a way that's consistent with the way our Lord obtained them for them, then we've got to humble ourselves just as Jesus humbled himself. Secondly, I want you to notice that being an all-play, everyday disciple-making church involves identifying the mentors. Look again with me in the scriptures of verse 11. We read this earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Now this is another one of those unique areas of the listing in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's that the spiritual gifts named in this verse, they're very small. They're a very distinct group. And they differ from, remember those passages you wrote down earlier about the other places where spiritual gifts are discussed in the New Testament where he teaches us about this? This gift's very different from those other lists. This gift just lists a small group of people. Now other lists, when you look at them in the, the New Testament, you'll find that they have a variety of gifts, while this list encompasses what may be called foundational gifts. These gifts are those that are necessary and essential for all other gifts and ministries. These are the five kinds of persons in terms of offices or functions. And I say that to you because the apostle that is mentioned here as being a gift is not a gift in the sense that other gifts are discussed in other places in the New Testament, but he's referring here to a person. An apostle met certain qualifications. In the New Testament, an apostle was someone who had to have been with Jesus. Someone who spoke with him, talked with Jesus, listened to Jesus, could reach out and touch Jesus. So an apostle was a person that did not, uh, is not a position that continued on. But what happens is, is that we understand in the broader sense, the word apostle is also a word that means one who has been sent on a mission. We think about the original 12 apostles and we know that Jesus gave them a very specific mission mission, and that these are the people who became the spokesman for for God bringing new revelation and understanding to the church. Then he mentions prophets. The prophets were the people who God used to present uh, uh, the present, forth-telling to the New Testament church. And he also used them to do some foretelling, that is, to predict the future. And these persons were prophets, but not all prophets were apostles. The contrary is true. All apostles were prophets, but not all prophets were apostles. And so you have these two, apostles and prophets. And these gifts are gifts which I would understand were fulfilled in the New Testament era. Then he mentions evangelists. Evangelists proclaimed the gospel defined by the apostles and the prophets. They were gifted to spread the gospel and to plant churches. I like to think of the evangelists as the obstetricians of the faith. They present the gospel and God works through them supernaturally to bring people into the family of God. And that is their role. God has supernaturally gifted them in that regard. 
Now, all of us have been assigned to be God's witnesses. We all have a story to tell about what Jesus did for us. We're all supposed to be his witnesses. And what is witnessing? (laughs) Witnessing is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. It's not how good I can talk somebody else into coming to Jesus. It's me just being faithful to be the witness that God has called me to be. I just tell my story. And then I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we find many times that when we do that, God uses our testimony to be the one to bring a person to faith in Christ. But let me tell you, I understand that it takes people many times hearing the gospel several times before they come to faith in Christ. You don't know if you're number one or if you're the last person that God will use before they come to faith in Christ. We don't know. It's not important that we know. What's important is that we be faithful in witnessing for Jesus Christ. Now, we're all called to be witnesses. But there are certain people who are gifted in the church to be evangelists. People whom God works through supernaturally and through their witness and ministry. Many people are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Then he mentions pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers are similar. They have similar responsibilities. Pastors, the Bible tells us, and write these passages down. Pastors in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And then also over in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4, pastors provided oversight. Pastors provided comfort. Pastors provided guidance as the church's shepherds. And then he mentions teachers. Teachers were those that God used to instruct and help apply God's revelation to the life of the church. Teachers were concerned with passing on the church's revealed teachings. And I want to just give you one of those things as an example of what they would do. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just real quickly here. I want you to show you what a teacher would do in the New Testament even today as this gift is exercised. 1 Corinthians 15, listen to verses 3 and 4. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now the apostles and the prophets were the people that God used to lay the foundation of the church. Those are the foundational gifts. And what the teachers would come along and do, they would take what has already been revealed by God through those that laid the foundation. And then they would take those basic truths that had been taught, that had been passed on, and they would teach those things for clarification and for doctrinal purity. Teachers we know are indispensable to to the body of Christ. They're necessary for the church to enable believers to distinguish false doctrine from true teaching. Evangelists are the obstetricians of the faith, but if that be true, then pastors and teachers are the pediatricians of the faith. Once the children have been born and begin to grow, then what they do is they come along and they nurture the development of each child in the faith. You know what he's saying to us in this passage of Scripture is that in the church, we need more mentors. Mentors equip partners in ministry. And the apostles realized they needed others to be participants with them in ministry. You remember the scene in Acts chapter 6? The church is growing. 
It's multiplying by leaps and bounds. Thousands are coming to faith in Christ from Acts chapter 2 on forward until the church hits a speed bump. And the speed bump it hits in Acts chapter 6 is that they've been caring for the members in the body of Christ and all of a sudden there's a huge dispute that breaks out. And why does it break out? Because the Grecian widows claim that they are being neglected in the service of food and ministry And they claim that you're showing favor to the Hebrew widows. You know what the apostles said? They said, you know, it's not right that they should be neglected. It's also not right that we should change our focus from sharing. the. I mean, look, we're preaching the word. God's giving us favor. People are coming to faith in Christ. Let us devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. And look here. Choose from among yourselves faithful men who will be able to minister to these needs. These are legitimate needs. We can't get to all of them. Get some other people and involve them in ministry. But I see the clearest example of what is meant by mentoring found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And I want you to look at that verse with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Now, Paul has been a great spiritual influence in Timothy's life. And when he's writing to him in this letter, he's talking to him about pastoral ministry. He says, Timothy, you've been following me around. You've been my apprentice. (laughs) I'm Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my Padawan. And he says in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Did I say 1 Timothy? I did? Somebody shake your head. Okay, well, all right. We'll get you up here next Sunday and let you try this. (laughs) 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What do we have there? Four generations in that one verse. Paul to Timothy. Paul, Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. And those faithful men who are also faithful and will be faithful to teach others also. So what we have here is a call for more mentors. Third thing we notice is that being an all-play, everyday disciple-making church involves engaging in ministry. So gifting the members, identifying the mentors, and the third thing is engaging in ministry. Going back to Ephesians chapter 4, notice the emphasis in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and the 12th verse. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. 
Notice what it says there in the 12th verse. Look at it real closely. The emphasis is not on us knowing our gift, but the emphasis in that verse is on doing the work of the ministry. Many Christians wait to serve until after they've discovered their gift. (laughs) What we're told here is exactly something very different. We're not to wait to engage in ministry until we're mature. Ministry is the pathway to maturity. We need to find out what God has told us to do, and then we need to get busy doing it. And when we get into the Word, we begin to see what God has commanded us to do, how we're to get engaged in ministry. And I want to give you a few examples of those, of things that God has commanded us to do as His followers. Number one, maybe most importantly, we're to make disciples. Every one of us are to engage in making disciples. Now, there are a lot of people who think, and even many pastors who think, that they're making disciples when they get up and they preach biblical sermons. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Do we need biblical sermons? Do we need biblical preaching? Yes, by all means. But when it talks about making disciples, it's talking about skin on skin, flesh on flesh, closeness to one another, living life together, doing life together. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus made disciples. He chose 12 men, then he spent three and a half years with those men. He poured himself into him. They could watch him. They could ask questions on how he handled life, why he said this, why he said that, what's going on right here, right now. Can you explain this to us? And he would do this with them in a small group setting. That's what making disciples is. More than that, we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're not only to make disciples, that's, that's one part of it, but we're to make disciples who become disciple makers. So it doesn't end with us. You see, Typically what we've done, we've been doing this for years, folks. I mean, for years we've been doing this. Come to a Bible study. Now, I love Beth Moore. She's a friend of mine. But for many years, what people have done is they've waited for the next Beth Moore Bible study to come out. And then we get a group of people, we'll study it, and you know what we do at the end of the Bible study? We say, what's the next study? When's the next one coming out? We're not talking about people getting together just for Bible study. Anybody can do that. What we're talking about is we're talking about taking on the life of Jesus Christ, leaving it out before other people until they themselves take on the life of Jesus and they begin living it out for others. And they make people disciples who also get to the place where they're living it out in their lives. You see, the onus is on us. It's not on the person behind the sacred desk. The onus is on the people in the pew. What he's talking about here is he's talking about mobilizing an armor, uh, an army. And then we sell also in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what I mentioned a few moments ago, that we're to be his witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Tullahoma, Judea, Tennessee, Samaria, California. <laughs> and the ends of the earth. France, Brett McNew. James chapter 1 verse 27 says we're to look after the orphans and the widows. Romans chapter 12 verse 13 says we're to share with the saints in their needs and practice hospitality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 says we're to warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, and help the weak. 
what the Bible is telling us is that we need to find out what God wants us to do, and then we need to get busy doing it. He's talking about not just discovering our gift. What he's talking about here is he's talking about us using our gifts. And you know, it's an interesting thing. While we're doing the ministry, while we're engaged in ministry, we discover our gift. I want you to notice lastly that being an all-play, everyday, disciple-making church involves moving toward ministry. So gifting the members, identifying the mentors, engaging in the ministry, and then fourthly, moving toward maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read these words, beginning at verse 13 again, till we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ, from him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Spiritual gifts are given for building up the body, not for my own personal enjoyment. Ministry, he says here, is intended to move believers toward accomplishing three goals. Unity of the faith and the full knowledge of God's Son. Maturity and the fullness of Christ. And verse 13 tells us that maturity and unity are measured in terms of the relationship of the body to the head, Jesus. Paul contrasts ministry in verse 14 and immaturity as it pertains to the church. Maturity, he defines as being no longer like little children. Now we're familiar with the development of children. A child at birth has its identity with its mother. They're one and the same. The child identifies with the mother. In a short time, healthy children, as they begin to develop, develop their own personality, right? I mean, you got a three and four-year-old? Anybody got a personality? Okay. So they start getting their own identity as separate from their mother, and then they begin to grow a little bit, but at this stage of their development, their focus and their interest is on themselves, what they need, what they want. Eventually, a child grows, and as they begin to grow, they're not only just interested in themselves, but they begin to discover that they can also be helpful to others. Now, that's the common development of children that we understand that we've witnessed many times over, but Paul's not referring to that kind of child development. Instead, Paul focuses on something very different as we look at the text. We notice that what he focuses on is he focuses on the instability and the vulnerability of children. Young children have a short attention span. Now, that's not to say that I can stand up here and talk for an hour. 
Young children have a short attention span. We know this. They can't stay focused on anything for very long. They're flitting around here and there and bouncing around to that spot and that spot and on to something new and different all along. They just can't stay focused on anything. Little children that we know about, we realize that these little children, as they're moving about and going on, is that they're gullible. They'll believe just about anything that an authority figure tells them. So what Paul is taking on here is he's taking on a doctrinally immature church. And going back to the pastor as a teacher, that person is equipping the church to be doctrinally sound in their understanding, but also those who are into God's word until God's word gets into them through their involvement in a discipleship group. What we have not said yet about the book of Ephesians is its uniqueness in its role in the development of the New Testament church. Now it bears the name Ephesians and it was addressed and it was a letter that was carried to believers who were in Ephesus. But it was written as a circular letter. Those who received it in Ephesus were to pass it on to the other churches in the Lycus Valley. And you recognize the names of some of those churches. They're the names of the churches in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But in particular was the church at Colossae. Now there was a trade route from the east that went all the way into the Roman Empire that was developed just before the time of Christ. Ephesus was located in Asia Minor at a place on the coastline where things that passed through there before they moved on across the ocean and went on to Italy to Rome. What we have here is we have Ephesus as being an epicenter and in Asia Minor there were several postal stops that followed along this trade route. And churches were planted in these different postal stops there in Asia Minor. So Ephesus was the epicenter. It was the primary post office. Things would come there, and then they would go out from there to the other churches along the routes. Have you read Colossians chapter 1 and 2 lately? If you know in that letter when Paul writes to that church, that's a church there in the Lycus Valley that would have received this letter from, uh, written to the Ephesians and passed on to other churches And that would explain to us why he talks about the importance of being a doctrinally sound church. Because in Colossae what happened is they had some people who came along after the church had been planted and the gospel had been taught who began to say they just had a hard time in their mind rectifying the fact how could Jesus be a human and not be sinful? We understand why they struggled with that. But the way they solved the issue was they said, you know, what, human, what uh, he did was he was the highest form of human being there can possibly be, and he kept growing and he kept growing until he got to the very top of the pinnacle. And our goal is we all start out in the same condition, but if we can just get a little bit holier, we grow our way up to God. And that was taught in the church. And Paul reacted against that in the book of Colossians. But what he's saying here to these believers, he is saying, 
that we are not to be susceptible to the next fad that comes along in the faith. God wants to involve every member in the ministry. But the way he does that is by growing us up to maturity in the faith. And the way we are marked is no longer children is through purity and stability purity and stability how to discern truth from error according to the written word of God and he says in verse 15 we're to be speaking the truth in love you know literally I looked at that phrase literally it means truthing in love it means us having a relationship where we can get together and we can talk with one another and when we see things that the scripture points out that are not right in our lives we can truth in love with one another and we can point those things out in our lives that are needful for us being edified and us being built up into the faith ultimately the church will grow up in Christ in all aspects with each part fitting together and supporting the other and that's what he says in verse 16 so often you know what happens when the saints get together instead of us getting together for the purpose of being fitted and knit together instead of us growing in every way into him who is the head what happens so often when we come to church as we come to be ministered to not to minister you ever felt like you came to church you were a part of the assembly and you took part in the worship service And you left, but if you're honest with yourself, when you left, you weren't thinking about were any of the other members of the body, did any of the other members of the body become more Christ-like today because I was present? Am I getting close enough to you because I'm getting close to me? We don't walk away saying... Lord, how did you use me today to make other people around me more Christ-like? When we leave church, when we leave the worship service, you know how we leave? We leave thinking, was I blessed? Was I ministered to? Our goal is to see Christ exalted, whether others are growing in Christ's likeness. We want them to grow in Christ's likeness because we were present. In 2000, Jimmy Wells and Larry Sanger set out to develop an online encyclopedia. They came up with an idea and they named it Newpedia. How many of you are familiar with Newpedia? Don't be surprised. (laughs) There's a reason why you haven't heard of it. The idea behind Newpedia was that they would contract with the brightest historians, the brightest doctors, the brightest scholars in the world who would write articles on certain topics. Then those authorities, those professionals, would take what they have written and they would submit it and a group of editors would go through the article and then after this editing process they would be posted on uh, the website by these servers, these giant servers that they had to store this information. 
And that was their approach to Newpedia. And do you know what happened? At the end of two years, they had 74 published articles. 74. Now, they had some others that were under review, but that was it. And you know what Wells and Sanger figured out? <laughs> we got a problem here. Houston, we got a problem. We've got to do something different. And so they came up with an idea. Their idea was, let's shut down the servers. Let's stop this. And let's open things up and make it available to people who have a passion about a particular topic. And if you've got a, a passion about the Tennessee Titans, you could write an article on the Tennessee Titans. You might publish their, their stats. You might publish their roster from year to year. You might give all kinds of information about the Tennessee Titans. And you could write that article yourself and submit it in. And so what happened was they opened it up to people to write about things that were just important to them, things that they were passionate about, and do you know what happened? At the end of the first year, these average ordinary people had submitted over 20,000 articles for consideration. It had gone through the same editing process as the one they used before. Well, Tom, you know what I did? I went online yesterday. Did a little research. And I typed in the question, how many articles are currently published in Wikipedia? You know how many there are? 6,477,165. Now that's yesterday. making Wikipedia the largest online encyclopedia on planet Earth. Now, why would I tell you this story? Well, it's not because I'm trying to tell you that Wikipedia is the most reliant source you can go to. But I'm telling you this story because it proves a point about what can be done through ordinary men and women. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, what we get is we get a vision of an all-play, everyday, disciple-making church. When ordinary men and ordinary women get involved in the disciple-making process, <clears throat> Jesus said in his final words to his disciples, gather around, boys, I want to tell you something. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples. He didn't ask him to do that. He commanded them to do that. If you got time, if you can get around to it, 
you know, we break during the summer because, you know, kids are out of school. If, you, if it's convenient for you and you can get around to making disciples, then, you know, just work it into your schedule however you want to. No, that's not what he said. He said, make it a priority. This is what you're to be involved in. This is your life, making disciples. This is what it's all about. You know what our approach at FBC is? It's to have groups of four or five men with men or four or five women with women meeting together on a weekly basis to get into the Word for the purpose of the Word getting into us. For us being apprentices of Jesus until we can get to the point where at the end of 12 or 18 months we make other apprentices of Jesus who will go on to make other apprentices of Jesus. And I thought with a message like the one that we have today, it'd be so important for me to understand that the most important gift we receive is the gift of salvation. That's the most important gift. If you're here today, you need to know that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that though we're all sinful, Christ took our sin upon himself and died for us so that we might be forgiven our sin if we confess our sin and repent of our sin and agree with God about our sin and then turn from our sin to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've gone my way. I've made a total mess of my life, but I don't want to go my way anymore. I want to go your way. So Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And then Jesus, by our own asking and admission, confessing our sins and calling on him and just saying, Jesus, save me. He comes in. He forgives our sins. He gives us a new life. And that life is based upon his death, burial, and resurrection. But he's given us this assignment once we become followers of Jesus. And that's to make disciples. And I thought this morning the best way for us to respond to this message is to take the next step. And I've asked Andy to come right now and talk about us taking the next step in making disciples. We are blessed at First Baptist Church with a host of ordinary people. And I am chief among ordinary here. But we are ordinary people. So we fit perfectly into what you've heard expressed today from uh, the book of Ephesians and from uh, Pastor Sid. So I want to remind you again that we are structured to do this here at First Baptist Church. We have D groups, and what we need is mentors. And what's interesting is when I say what we need is mentors, some of you in this room perk up. Some of you say, I know that's me. I know exactly what I'm to do. I know what God's called me to do. I know how God has equipped me to do this. And all you need to do is look around you and realize realize that there are people around you who need what you're here to offer, and that is mentoring. They just need a little guidance. They need a little direction. They need a little help to become who God wants them to be. And the beauty of it is it's, it, it really gets boils down to four little simple things, and that is a handful of friends. It's just three to five friends, same gender, guys with guys, girls with girls. Number two, you just simply need a reading plan. And you might say, where am I going to find a reading plan? Many of you are holding a reading plan in your laps right now. Some of you in the backs of your Bibles, there's a reading plan. Some of you can go online at fbctullahoma.org and you can find in the three little dashes up there in the corner a reading plan. There are several of them right there. It's a simple Bible reading plan. You just need that as you're working together with these small groups of friends. 
You might find it on your Bible app. It has a reading plan. Just how do you read the Bible every day? The third thing you need is a day and a time to meet. So you just invite these friends to get together. My D group meets on Wednesdays at 11.30. We like to be out in the community, so we go from restaurant to restaurant around town. We do our Bible study right there in front of everybody, and it's great. And we pray, and we do our memory verses, and we just have a great time with it. And you wouldn't believe the number of times people come up and say, will you pray for me? Will you pray for my son? Will you? It's just wonderful. We like to do it in public. That's okay. You don't have to do that, but we do. And then the last thing you need is a plan. And so today at the back door and over here at the welcome desk, we're providing a simple plan. It's just the five parts of a weekly D-group meeting. What does it look like to get together? What do you do while you're together? You pray, you read your Bible, you do some memory work, you, you have goals and accountability, and you talk about the other people who could benefit from exactly what you're, you're doing here today. We have put these at the back door at the welcome desk. Those of you who know you're a mentor, please grab one of those today. Those of you who suspect that this is the very thing that's missing in your spiritual journey, you don't feel like you're growing, but you want to, you can grab one of these today, and you can discover what this looks like and how, how it feels and what's going to happen in your life. And I'm encouraging you today, please, take what you already know and share it with people. Some of you went to, to uh, Shaco just a couple of weeks ago, and you were in D groups at Shaco. And some of you had wonderful experiences in those D groups. And I'm just simply asking you, would you continue that? Would you continue to do what God's asked you to do? You know who you are. Step up, please. We really want to disciple our people because we're most passionate about these people right here becoming the disciples that God has intended them to be. And then I just ask one more thing, if you don't mind, I'm going I'm to finish here. And that's this simple. When you do, when you find that little circle of friends and you find your date and your time and you've begun your reading plan and so forth and so forth, would you just let us know in the church office? We want to provide helps to you. We want to pray for you. We want to be there with you in this process because we are a church family. And we would love to hear from you how we can encourage you in that. Please do that today. Please do that. Start that process today. And let's go hard after what God has for us.